Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hi, everyone. This is Ben. Hey, it's Russell. Today on the show, we've got Jessica Posiak. Jessica is a wildlife expert, travel writer, and owner of Want Expeditions, a conservation-oriented adventure company with an unparalleled world destination list, including Yemen, Central African Republic, and the Galapagos. Inspired by the most notable explorers and conservationists, Jessica is a feminine extraordinaire, pioneering through the most remote and uncharted destinations with her guests, uncovering amazing wildlife and cultural treasures. Jessica, you've been to over 70 countries. Before we get started, rifle them all off in alphabetical order. Oh, boy. (laughs) Albania. We'll start there. So anyway, in all seriousness, how did you get started in all of this? always been pretty passionate about the outdoors in general, but I think the exploration in and of itself kind of started when I was about five years old. I remember my father taking me on a hike um, in a park outside of Detroit. It's called Kensington. And it was the middle of the winter. We're out hiking and we turned the corner and we stumbled across a couple that were feeding sunflower seeds to chickadees. And I just remember being absolutely fascinated with the idea that here is this wild animal that's landing on these people's hands and eating right out of it. And after watching this for maybe a couple of minutes, the woman looked over and she said, here, hold out your hand. And so I put my hand out and she dumped some seeds in. And next thing you know, the chickadees landed on it. And I just was absolutely captivated. And I think it must have triggered something in my brain that would then send me off over the next. 25 years um, running around in all these crazy countries in search of rare and endangered wildlife. So when you had that experience, I personally went to Tanzania and went on these safaris. It's a little bit more uh, like your company does. I came back and then I went to the San Diego Zoo and it the San Diego Zoo is supposed to be the best zoo basically in the country is what I hear. I <laughs> went, it was terrible. After going to see the kind of things that you do on your trips, did you have a similar experience going to any zoos coming back from some of your epic adventures? I mean, I would say zoos are not my most favorite place. Once you've seen something out in the wild, it's really hard to see it in an enclosure, no matter how incredibly it's been engineered for the animal. But I do think that they play a really important role in wildlife conservation because the crux is that if you can't touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, people really don't want to protect it. And so zoos are pretty vital in sort of bridging the gap between either inspiring people to go out and see the wildlife in the wild or donating to conservation um, organizations and just overall supporting. So yes, it's a little disheartening because, you know, you don't want to see anything caged, but on the same token, they do provide a really important educational role. What was that quote that you just said? If you can't touch it, see it, taste it, smell it. Yeah. If you can't touch it, taste it, see it, smell it. Then people don't want it. Nope. And that's kind of depressing, isn't it? 
It is. That's one of the things that we really try and encourage on our tours is effectively to make ambassadors of the places that, and things that they've seen so that, you know, they go home and they say, look at what I saw. And then it might pique somebody's interest. It might inspire somebody and hopefully they'll take an initiative on their own either to also go see what's really happening or support a cause. So you own the company WANT, which stands for Wildlife and Nature Travel. How'd you really get into that? How did you start this company? I was inspired from a really young age to see the world. My grandfather had just about every National Geographic. And so when I would go to his place, I inevitably would make my way down into his basement and spend hours poring over these musty, moldy magazines and just looking at photos of these expeditions into the jungles of Borneo, looking for mountain gorillas or, you know, these expeditions to conquer Everest or similar mountains just really, really moved me day in and day out. And then when I was 16, I actually traveled overseas with an orchestra, or as we like to refer to it, a dorchestra. A dorchestra. (laughs) And I went through Europe, but that just kind of got me hooked. From that point on, I just never really looked back. I, within the first couple of years... Went back to Europe a few more times, went and saw my best friend and office manager in Iceland. And then just as I kept progressing along, I started doing a little bit more and more adventurous type travel. First backpacking for two months through Central America, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, having a fun moment of getting pulled off a bus by gunpoint in Nicaragua, you know, learning experiences along the way, baby steps. So at one point you just said, I'm going to take people with me and make a business out of it? You know, there's something to be said for experience. And I've always done a lot of leadership type programs for outdoor outfitters. My background with ecology and leadership experiences, it's just natural fit. As Ben was saying, you've been to 70 countries in all seven continents. What other issues have you run into during some of these adventures? Well, as you can imagine, along the way, there's always things that pop up that are unexpected, whether it's a flat tire or you can have a tree that falls down, landslides, things that, you know, block the one road. People trip, they fall, they break, they sprain. And fortunately, knock on wood, I haven't had anything more major than that in terms of uh, having to medevac people out. I think I'm becoming a master at negotiating the country politics of a lot of countries. Wow. Have you had like a very intense moment when that's happened to you? Yes. Actually, um, a couple years back, I was caught in the middle of a coup d'etat in Mali with a group of guests. Do tell. Well, (laughs) we had spent about two weeks going through Mali and Burkina Faso, Um, had an excellent expedition uh, out to see some very remote tribes. And we got back in the capital of Mali and we were supposed to fly out the next morning to Ghana to actually continue on with a second expedition through what I call the Voodoo Nations. And this is Ghana, Togo and Benin. And so we went to bed, woke up the following morning and I came up to the restaurant area at our resort or lodge, whichever we would like to call it. And my guest, she's been with me on quite a few other expeditions, gives me this really kind of funny look. And she says, did you hear the news? And I said, what? And she goes, there's been a coup. And we, we are always joking around. Like, she and I have been on trips all over the world. And so I said, oh, come on, roll my eyes. And she goes, no, really, look. And there's this one television in the restaurant. And I look up on it. 
And sure enough, here are all of the military generals that have just overthrown the government that have taken over the communication systems and they're reading off their list of demands of what they want to have done in order to basically return power. And so, so what happens next? Well, so I kind of paused for a moment and thought, okay, I'm not sure where this falls exactly on my emergency contingency plans. Let me go collect my thoughts for a second. So I stepped outside and my local guide came running up and he was just absolutely panicked. And actually a bullet had struck the ground like right by him as he was entering our compound. So kind of where we were staying is a hotel with separate cabanas, if you will. And then they have like the center restaurant area, but there's a gated area that prevents anybody from just walking in or off the property. And so he comes flying in and he's like, oh my gosh, a bullet just hit the ground. Um, The city is starting to fall apart. You know, so we have this like quick conference as we're standing right outside and all of a sudden gunfire just erupted all across the city. And it was really interesting because we were actually, the hotel itself is right on a river. And initially we could hear it across the river, but then just, it was like, imagine fireworks, not just being in one central location, but coming from 360 degrees. Oh, wow. So what are the, who's shooting at who? What's going on right now? The military was upset because they were basically being sent out to Timbuktu to protect that region from Al-Qaeda. And so at the time, they basically felt that they were being sent out to slaughter, that they didn't have enough manpower, and it was basically unfair to them to be forced to serve in this area where there just simply were not enough people to defend and um, protect this area. So that was kind of like their major gripe. And what was really interesting was for weeks on end, we had been monitoring the situation in Timbuktu and ultimately took it off our itinerary um, because just before that, two German tourists, I think they were, were kidnapped and it was, it was getting pretty hairy up there. And so if anything was going to kind of fall apart in all of Mali, you know, news organizations, everybody basically thought it was going to happen at Timbuktu. No one anticipated this happening in the capital. So you're stuck in the middle of all this gunfire, right? Yeah. And where do you go? Well, that was an interesting thing. So then I ran inside and I called the um, the embassy and said, you know, this is my name, this is my company, and also word of advice to everybody out there, always be sure to pre-register with your embassy before you go to countries like this. Well, I, what does that mean exactly, pre-register? Basically, before you go into any developing country, especially, you just give them a heads up saying, hey, I'm here. So that in the case that something does happen, they kind of have a list that says, okay, should we be looking for this person? However, I will say, after you hear the response I got from the embassy, I think it's a good idea. I encourage it. It's good to cover all your bases, but it was pretty amusing because I got the guy on the phone and I said, you know, my name's Jessica Posiak. I'm here with One Expeditions. I have four guests with me and they're from, you know, these countries. Most of them were from the U.S. and Canada. And the guy says to me on the phone, okay, yes, thank you. Great. We'll call you back. Don't you want my number? And he goes, (laughs) oh, yeah. So I I give him the number thinking he's going to tell me something else. Like, you know, they should know primarily where this is coming from, who's causing it, or even to say, everybody go into one room or go to the roof, go to the, you know, what, what is he going to tell me? So I said, is there anything else I should know? And he says, yes, shelter in place. Mm. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. I kind of already had that going for me, but 
So they don't call in Superman or Captain America to go do a rescue mission or anything? No, they don't. And, like, actually, they, they never called back. I never got enough callback from the, the embassy, which is a little bit interesting. But I'm not, not talking bad. There was a lot happening that week. We yeah, may have not been sure. that yeah. How long does all of this last? Uh, we were actually trapped there for a week. A week? I don't really recall any new people arriving to or from the hotel. The main main thing that day was just basically keeping everyone safe. And I think we spent the majority of the day using this like very broken internet to check for any additional news coming from anywhere, watching the television. And I do distinctly recall sending my dad a text message because, of course, you know, we should all check in with our parents. And I just said, Dad, everything's okay. I'm in the middle of a coup. I've already contacted the embassy on this end. Could you do me a favor and just put in one extra call on yours? <laughs> and I can only imagine my father's face at that moment just to be like, okay, this is my daughter. I know she takes people all over the world and she's a professional at this, but this is my daughter and this is happening. It sounds like you were pretty cool the whole time too. I mean, you have clients. They're actually paying you to keep them safe almost is the way it feels. That's a big responsibility for you. Absolutely. And I think... You know, that's part of what lends itself to staying calm when you're in charge of other people. <laughs> I feel like when I'm in charge of other people, I'm probably less thinking about my safety and more about theirs. You know, I'm focused on how are they doing? What are their needs? What are they thinking? What can I do? You know, how can I make them feel better? How do I keep them safe? Yeah, well, that would make me trust you. So thank you. How do you get out of this whole thing? So, yeah, we spent basically an entire week, which was interesting throughout the week as things progressed, because the following day, we've obviously missed our flight to Ghana. We need to get a flight. The idea or the thought process was at the time that if any airline were to actually come in, because the thing that they take after the you know radio and television communications are the airports. So airport shut down, borders are closed. We're basically trapped. I had everybody buying flights. And as we were searching for flights, flights would go from minute to minute from 2000 up to 7000 down to 500 up to 5000. And we were betting though that it would be a major air carrier that would come in to get out foreign nationals. The first day, I mean, everybody maxed out their credit cards, friends of friends maxed out credit cards trying to do anything to secure a seat on flights to get us out. Even by day 2, what was interesting as well, was how the hotel where we were staying started to run out of food because, yeah, it's not like here where a hotel would have a massive freezer, you know, a walk-in, if you will. So they're not storing food for days on end. And it, it was literally by the next morning you went down to breakfast and it was like, oh, we don't have cheese today. Or there's no oranges, just bananas. Russell would probably last a day without cheese, oranges, and bananas. Those are like his favorite food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on the cheese part of it. Where would life be without cheese? There, there was that sort of thing to deal with, but again, still gunfire going off around the city. So I think throughout the week, it was a surreal experience because you start to almost adjust to what's going on around. You hear gunfire, you're not jumping as quickly. But the big thing that happened, I, can't, I think it was on day three, is that we realized the so-called military or people in general were going around and commandeering people's vehicles. We had our 4x4s, which we had used to get around throughout our trip that were sitting on the property. Hiding the keys is not necessarily the best way to do that because potentially have anyone experience bodily harm if 
them finding out he's the driver and he would have the keys. Maybe if they gave them to me, well, eventually it would come down to probably she's the one with the keys. So what we did is we actually deflated one of the tires on the car. So it still had the spare. We could easily swap that out really quickly. But basically, if someone came in to take the vehicle, it was not going to be an instantaneous thing. And it was really fortunate with our timing because I think it was about an hour after that some people in fatigues came in and someone's vehicle leaving the compound and it wasn't the original person who was driving it. Wow. Some great brainstorming. Yeah. Nice work. Very creative. <laughs> that was definitely a, something I hadn't anticipated. That That's now in my emergency contingency plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, just in general, I guess we'll finish the story in a little bit, but what did you learn through this whole experience that you can apply to future trips? Number one is just always to remain calm. Panic is so easily spread. And especially if you're there in a leadership position, keep your cool. And if you're there not in a leadership position, to really respect decisions because the person who is taking you through these areas, be it on a mountain, be it on a tour, they're there because of their experience. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, if, you know, they really know what they're doing. They've been there enough and have enough experience they can fall back on that they're factoring that into all their decision making. And I'm not saying that the people I was with were interfering by any means. I think I was extremely fortunate with the people that were with me. They're some of the most amazing travelers I've ever been with. But there's that, you know, if you can kind of treat it that in and of itself as an adventure, you'll probably come out on top because it's important (laughs) Never to panic. Everybody's wearing the shirts now. Keep calm and carry on. Yeah. <laughs> My one expedition that I've been on, I uh, was up to Kilimanjaro. And it was interesting because we had a guide with us from the United States. And he was more of a psychological guide and really make sure our emotions were in check. And then really wherever we would go, we would be guided by the local people anyways. And so I guess for you and your own experience, it's just it's so powerful to have these experiences, not necessarily about the land that they'll be walking on, but just kind of what they're thinking. Yeah, that's actually a really great way to put it. In fact, I remember after one particularly difficult expedition I had in Asia, I was in Kyrgyzstan, I was sitting on the plane and plopped down next to this guy and he introduced himself and we started chatting and I was just worn out emotionally, physically, mentally, myself. And he said, what is it that you do? And I said, oh, well, you know, I I lead expeditions all over the world. And had this group, blah, blah. And he goes, ah, it's kind of like kindergarten, isn't it? And I just looked at him and I thought, you know, because the other expression people usually throw at me is like, it's like herding cats. But I, I looked at him and like this huge smile just broke out on my face because it was like, wow, did you just read my thoughts? And uh, I said to him, gosh, you have no idea how accurate you are right now. And I said, what is it that you do? And he says, I'm a psychologist. Wow. On the dot. <laughs> yeah. But no. And, and again, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have very amazing people that travel with me and Inevitably, there are different things that trigger different people, whether it's very hot, whether it's very cold, um, even, you know, a 10 hour ride down extremely bumpy roads can be enough to set people off. And I think everybody kind of has their moment where they're frustrated. Some people make it go inward. Some people make it go outward. But I'm always definitely paying attention to where everyone is in terms of their emotional and mental state, because that's really key to getting them through it and getting a whole group through it and experience. Yeah, great point. How did you get out of Mali? 
sorry to keep going back to the story, but what would you do? The day that the curfew actually lifted, again, you know, we had purchased however many tickets to try and get out. I believe we all had tickets on the supposed Air France flight for that day. But we packed everything up, hopped in our vehicle, raced to the airport and made it through all the military checkpoints. And it was remarkably calm that morning. In fact, it was like making me almost on edge because I was sort of afraid that then people that had overthrown the government would, you know, take advantage of all the people being out and about. So we got to the airport and running around trying to get information. It, you know, is there an Air France flight in route? Is there any company in route? Can we buy tickets? What can we do? There was just absolutely no information. Finally, I've got two cell phones. I had a local cell phone. I had a U.S. cell phone. I had my sat phone just calling all over, texting all over. Nobody knows anything. Embassy is not giving any information. And by about 10 o'clock, the airport was slammed. We had people coming in in droves. Again, I, you know, I'm running over to any other groups. There were expats that were there seeing if they had any information, just if I could find out any word on the street. And no one had anything. So I turned around and I looked at all my guests and I said, well, you know, I think we really need to get out of here regardless, whether it means us flying out, which is looking very unlikely at this point, or crossing the border to go back to another country and then we can fly out of there is probably our greatest chance. And so I said, you know, I can arrange the car and I think we should drive straight to Crino Faso border. That was the closest border that we could get to. At that point, I had a fair amount of cash on me too. So I was thinking that even if things fell apart in Bamako again, we would already be on the road and on our way out towards the border. And if need be, there was ways to negotiate ourselves across the border. Once you're outside the city, I mean, you're basically just going down these broken, empty African roads until you come to a village of some sort. But it's not like people are telephoning along the way and would even know that we were traveling out that far. So everyone basically concurred, threw everyone into the vehicle, and then we began a really intense seven-hour drive straight for the border. And the big joke my guests were teasing me about that whole time is, Every time we stopped to get our passport stamped, so we had multiple chances on our two-week tour, all the border guys loved my lipstick. Loved, loved, loved my lipstick. (laughs) (laughs) So you can bet by the time we got to that Molly Burkina Faso border, my lips were painted as red as they could get. I was like, (laughs) we are getting through one way or another. (laughs) And that was the other thing, too, is I'm really used to working in pretty corrupt countries, people asking for bribes and what have you. And the one thing that struck me on this tour that we had done the two weeks prior to this, I had not had a single instance of anyone trying to take a bribe from me. So we get there and this is just a really dusty, like one man operation in the middle of nowhere. But it's kind of scary because, you know, these guys, they have guns, they're employed by the government, and they're going to determine whether or not we're going through. And I just remember the seconds were taking hours as I'm waiting for this guy to go through, check everyone's passport, so on and so forth. And he walks up to me, and it was this really big guy. He's just staring down at me and holding all the passports up against his chest. And I just sat there, and I stared up at him. And then he starts tapping him in his hand. And I thought, are you kidding me? Oh, great. Now he's going to ask for a bribe. And at that moment, it was like the one part where internally I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I think I must have just given him the thousand yard stare or something because he sort of stared back at me, cocked his head to the side and then broke into this giant smile, rolled his head and handed me the passport. (laughs) But, you know, you think that doesn't mean you're free. There's this about 20 minutes of no man's land till then you get to the Burkina Faso border. 
And one of the problems I had had was two of my guests didn't have multiple entry visas because we're, you know, we're now going back in to Burkina Faso. And the guys actually didn't really check it closely as we were coming back in. So that was not such a big deal. I think we got maybe an hour past the border and I was like, okay, everybody, we need to get out. We need to take a break. And I'm like, we're going to take a photo. And so we have this super blurry photo as we've just gotten out and crossed the border, but there's not a single thing that shows where we are. You know, there's no point of reference. We it could, could be, be anywhere. Anywhere. Absolutely anywhere. But I think we just kind of needed that moment to get out, stretch. This whole thing reminds me of Argo. Have you seen Argo? Oh, yes, yes, yes. At the end when they're trying to get out. That movie made me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. This is hitting a little too close to home. But yes, yeah, so then we made it into Ouagadougou, which is the capital of Burkina Faso. And then, well, we had decided because the other tour was already starting um, with other guests that it made most sense just to drive from there down to Togo and continue on with the expedition. And that's what I think is a real testament to the people that I was with. Talk about troopers. Here, you've just done a really hardcore two-week expedition through Mali, Burkina Faso. You've been trapped for a week in the middle of a coup, but okay, let's go on and finish an expedition through Togo, Benin, and Ghana. And sure enough, drove down to the Togo border. And again, I thought, okay, this could be an issue because a couple of my guests don't have the multiple entry visas. Hopefully they don't catch this. And I hadn't crossed through that border over land before. I was expecting it to be this one horse stop. And we pull up and it's this massive trucking border. This is where all the goods and services are flowing through West Africa. Multiple lanes, huge buildings, and I just thought, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So what is the first thing that I did? I went for my lipstick, of course, and <laughs> put on my biggest smile. We walked in, and there's two guys sitting there. There's the guy that looks at your information, and then there's the guy that actually stamps your passports. And so I sit down, big smile, hand him the passports, and the first thing he opens, he looks right at my one guest passport, and he says, we have a problem. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm like, problem? What problem? I know no problem of what you speak. So I just call it my like charmer state where I just started asking him about how does he like his job and I love the country and oh god all these amazing things that we've seen and it's wonderful and beautiful. I don't mention anything about the coup. He was like, oh, you come here often. I said, well, yeah, you know, we try and win an expedition every year. It's, I just love this country. And he goes, well, here, hang on. <laughs> he writes down his email address and he's like, you contact me next time you come. Uh-huh. And he slides the passports over to the stamper guy. And you see the stamper guy kind of go like, and he just raised his hand, nods his head. And the guy shut right up, stamped the passports. He gathers them all back, gives me a big smile and hands them to me and says, we see you next time. <laughs> so you're going to email him next time you go? Actually, that was a big joke because I got an email from him. The email was like right before Valentine's Day or something really funny. So I sent that out to a guest that had been with me and they got quite a kick out of that. Did any of these customers happen to go on any trips after this one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, in the one that I was telling you that traveled with me before, who is just an absolute riot, she's, she'll be coming with me on my Galapagos expedition. That's up in two weeks' time. Another one we write regularly on Facebook. I think he did... Borneo after that trip. The other two haven't really been traveling at all, but we keep in regular contact all the time. So on top of these trips that you run, you're also doing a lot of research with 
climate change back in 2006. You went to Antarctica. Uh, what do you actually do when you're researching? Well, my background is in ecology, and the trip to Antarctica back in 2006, I went with Michigan State University to study climate change, and that just really impressed me. And I had sort of my first real hardcore introduction of working with expedition staff. People who had been researchers in certain areas were highly focused on wildlife or climate or biology, you name it, but also educators. I loved those two things being combined together. After that, I did quite a bit of independent research, working with various lodges, conducting baseline studies of the type of wildlife that they had in the area. And then most recently, I'm working with the Smithsonian, the Natural History Museum on carabid beetles in French Guiana. Wow. So you're obviously extraordinarily experienced in this regard. Over your years of research and traveling, what are some prominent issues within your discipline? One of the things I really try to encourage people to be very conscientious and cognizant of where they're traveling and how they're traveling. I try to educate people on the difference between ecotourism and responsible tourism. For instance, we really practice responsible tourism in the sense that we give all of our guests reusable water bottles and we fill up from a single recyclable or reusable container. We have bottled distilled water throughout, but instead of everyone having a little 20-ounce or liter-sized bottle of plastic that gets thrown away, can't be recycled, I think I did one quick estimate and found out we're saving over 100,000 water bottles from going into the environment area. Wow. Yeah, and that's a big problem with a lot of tour companies and people in general. I understand that you know it's important to have access to fresh drinking water and it's a little bit of a pain in the butt and you don't always get this ice cold bottle of water that can be kept in a small cooler because we're filling from a water cooler sized jug. In my opinion, that's what you have to do. That's fair for the people that you're taking and the places that you're traveling to because, you know, to go in there and consume all that, you basically dump it on the local people. So that's uh, really at the heart of a lot of my tours. Also, we make sure that we work with a lot of local women's organizations. We actually do quite a bit of philanthropic work, working with NGOs around the world and making sure that getting back to the touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, that's just as important for the visitors that I'm bringing in as it is for the people that are on the ground. So they understand why are we coming there to see the gorillas or why are we coming there to see the jaguar, instilling a value into their surroundings. You just sound like such a busy person with all these trips. I mean, there's 62 that you do a year, maybe not personally, but through your business. How do you have time to go on the more fun trips for you? Like we had to delay this interview a little bit because of your harp seal pups birth that you actually went to. Not your own harp seal pups. (laughs) (laughs) It was painful, but (laughs) yeah, I do lead a number of my expeditions. You know, I have really great people that work under me that help keep the company going. And I also have what seems to be unlimited reserves of energy, which makes a big difference as well. But I think when we had first contacted each other, I was leaving to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. This was the best year that they have had in about 10 years time for the harp seals. They haul out on the ice and give birth to their pups. And we fly out by a helicopter, land on the ice, and then spend anywhere from three to six hours photographing them and then fly back and do this throughout the week. I mean, everybody travels, right? Maybe not in the fashion that you do and the frequency that you do, but a lot of people in the world travel to different countries, different states. 
What is some advice or maybe a call to action that you can give our listeners when they travel? I think the biggest thing is, you know, the internet is amazing. It is going to connect our conversation to people all over the world. You can research very remote locations. It's absolutely phenomenal. But the one thing that I just caution people to be careful of is just because you have access to a place via internet, you can't go there expecting the same modern conveniences, experiences, and infrastructure as that we have here in the United States and that there's no substitution for experience. So if you haven't been there before, really make sure you're getting in touch with somebody who has because a lot of things can go wrong and you can end up spending a lot more money a lot more time and have a lot less enjoyable trip trying to think that you can just basically fly there and make your way around you can also deal with a lot of safety issues that way too as opposed to really ensuring that you've done your homework more than just seeing that a hotel is listed online or something of that sort Yeah, definitely. Especially when you're on the trips, just to completely unplug yourself and just keep the essentials with your your satellite phone in case you run into any coups or or anything. (laughs) So, uh, well, thank you so much for talking to us today. You can definitely uh, check out anything else that Jessica's up to straight through her website, wantexpeditions.com. See her bio, see her trips. Is there any other way that the listeners can connect with you, Jessica? Absolutely. I'm on Facebook. You can find me under Want Expeditions or Posiac J is my individual Twitter account on Want Expeditions. We put out a lot of information of specials as well as important ongoing world events, things related to conservation. And then we're on Facebook as well, also at Want Expeditions. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Jessica's pretty legit. She was just chosen as one of Travel Channel's 2014 Best Adventure Advisors. Yeah, I'd trust her on a trip. So anyway, Meister fans, there's a section in iTunes that's called the New and Noteworthy section. Basically, in the first eight weeks of your podcast, you can get to this section if you have a lot of downloads and reviews... Yeah, and the new and noteworthy section is really important because we've heard on average that the listeners in podcasts grow by about 300% within that first eight weeks. So it's very important to us, and we only really need you to do two things. We just need you to subscribe to our podcast and give us a review. And if that happened to be five stars, that'd be wonderful. So thanks for listening, guys.